Thanks, Will. Great. Thanks, Will. Good morning. How are we doing? I don't expect you to answer that second part of the question, by the way, but it's nice to be here. Uh, several people, uh, just even in the course of coming in, have said we're praying for you, and just that's so encouraging. Honestly, thank you so much for that. Uh, life has gone back to sort of 150 miles an hour again, which is great, uh, but I really do value your prayers and would appreciate them. Uh, very significant, of course, this weekend as we pray for the Queen. And just in, uh, in line with that and linked to that, uh, every primary school child in Newton Arch got a book over the last week or so produced by the Good Book Company. And it sort of, it just charts a wee bit of the Queen's life and journey, but woven through it is her faith. So when you're praying, pray into that, that uh, these children will look at that and see the reality of her faith lived out, but also parents as well who will look at that. So just be praying for that. Every child in Newton Arch and also right across the United Kingdom as well, got that book. So just be praying into that. And do pray for us as a family. Currently, my daughters, one of them's doing GCSEs and the other's doing A-levels. So that is all different sorts of challenges that are coming our way. So I would appreciate your prayers for that. But both love the Lord and uh, are serving him, which is a blessing to us. So it's good to be with you. Let's look at the passage that I've been given to uh, speak about this morning. So Luke chapter 7, Luke 7, 36 through to chapter 8, verse 3. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, just listen. And if you do, just keep it open as we look at this passage, this great passage of the grace of God and his forgiveness. So Luke 7, 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as he stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who's this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some of the women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven, seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is God's word. Let's just pray as we consider it together. Father, we thank you for the inspired word of God. We thank you that we have it available to us in our language. And Lord, I pray that my stumbling words will be taken by your mighty Holy Spirit and will penetrate hearts today and make an impact for the sake of your name 
and your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. We've taken uh, our daughters once to Disney. Uh, it was whenever we celebrated my 30th birthday, or my 40th birthday, and uh, our 10th wedding anniversary. So at that stage, they were five and seven. And if you've ever been to Disney or any of these big theme parks, uh, most of the rides have got restrictions, rightly so. So they've height restrictions. Uh, and that is for safety precautions, because if you're going around and you're not tall enough and you happen to fly out of a roller coaster, that would be unfortunate to say the least. So they're there for good reason. But to be honest with you, some of them are quite petty. And there were some of the rides that our daughters wanted to go on to. And they were prevented because of the height restriction. And to be honest, looking at the rides, you think, you know what, that is, you don't really need that restriction. So I'm not proud of this. Uh, but it's many years ago, and we've repented of it and moved on. But on the next day that we went back, uh, Heidi gave both our daughters high ponies. Now, just for the uh, clarity of what that is, there are many different ponytails you can have. Uh, so you can have a ponytail which hangs down the back. Or one, so a high pony is one that's on the top of your head that sort of goes up a wee bit. So both the girls on this particular day had high ponies and met every single height restriction with centimeters to spare because their hair was stuck up there. Now, that was probably, as parents, it was probably a bit reckless. Uh, but anyway, they did get onto the rides, which was good. And they're here today, which is also good, of course. Uh, most of us are familiar with restrictions, and they're there for good reason. So whether it be age or height or qualification, whatever it may be, there's restrictions in place in this world for good reason. Some will be petty, but most of them in order to protect us or in order to make sure the right person gets the job or is qualified to do the particular job. And I suppose most of us are comfortable with restriction in that sense. But also most, if not all of us, have experienced restrictions in our life, social restrictions imposed by people that we're not comfortable with, we're not happy with, that we don't agree with. From our earliest moments probably on this life, so at nursery school and primary school, we're excluded from somebody's particular wee friendship group because it's their wee friendship group and they don't want us to be part of it. Or we're not sitting at their table or we're not playing their game or we're not invited to their party. And we've experienced restrictions. And if we're honest, we have imposed restrictions on people as well, social restrictions. You're being picked last for my team. That never happened to me. It must have been terrible for these poor people when you're picking the football team. Will can probably relate to it when, you know, it comes to the last two people and someone else is picking you. Well, we'll take you, sort of a thing. We've probably, if we haven't experienced it, we've probably all done it. Or actually, we're probably still doing it, some of us, or experiencing it. Praise God that he does not treat us like that. We serve, we worship, we sing to, we acknowledge, we listen to the Word of God who teaches us about a God who by His grace accepts us and doesn't impose these man-made restrictions that we had. And as I thought through and prayed uh, into this message this morning, let me just read, you don't need to turn to these, let me just read another couple of verses to you uh, that came to mind. Uh, Matthew 9, 35 to 36. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Luke 19, uh, verse 41. And as you think about the scene in this house and the grace of our Lord and how he treated this woman, look at these other accounts of our Lord. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. That's the heart of Jesus. 
That was his mandate here on earth. He had compassion on people. He loved people. He wept for people. And see particularly that uh, short verse in Luke chapter 19. Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, where about a week later, he would be taken and beaten and spat upon and mocked and put on a cross. And he wept over the city. I find that staggering. And to be honest, when I read it again this week and it came to my mind, it came with fresh impetus as I thought again about the grace of the Lord Jesus. As he wept for that huge city, he wept for the individuals who lived in that city, for people who were broken, for people who were disregarded and marginalized, for people who were ignored and pushed to the very fringes of society, for people who were abused, for people who were indifferent, for people who were openly hostile to him. He wept for those people for people who lived moral, upright lives, and for people who lived completely immoral lives and did what they chose, irrespective of consequence, for people who were hypocritical in their lives and lived one way in front of people and another way in their private lives, for the richest and the poorest and everyone in between, Jesus wept for those people as he stood and he looked over Jerusalem. And as he looked over Jerusalem, he wept for the men who would a week later take him and laugh at him and spit on him and drive a crown of nails or a crown of thorns into his head and drive nails through his hands and his feet. I mean, that is incredible, isn't it, when you consider the Lord and what was going to happen to him. He wept for those people, for the criminal who shouted abuse on him as he hung beside him on the cross and for the other who repented on the cross. He wept for every single individual. And let me just say, if you think of nothing else this morning, after I have uh, looked through this passage with you, take that thought with you. There is a, a Savior who hung on a cross and died, but who looks at us and his heart breaks for us and his heart rejoices with us as well because that is the Lord Jesus that I love and serve and that I know and that I try to follow. He's someone who has a heart of compassion for us. And that's what you see coming out clearly in this passage as this woman comes. And when you see the life of the Lord Jesus lived out, he wasn't interested in social status. He was interested in souls, praise God. And he's interested in your soul and he's interested in my soul this morning. And in this passage that I've just read in Luke, you see polar opposites of people. In terms of social standing, Simon, a wealthy, well-respected Pharisee, and a woman who is just unnamed but labeled by people and notorious as someone who lived a sinful life in that town. So people would have known her. People knew Simon because of his status and his wealth, but they also knew this woman because of her lifestyle and because of her sins. And it seems to me as you read it, Simon's still trying to make his mind up about Jesus and has invited him to his house to maybe discover more. But even as he tries to rationalize what he maybe already knows about Jesus, what he has seen for himself, what he has listened to, he cannot get past this woman who has come into this house. He cannot see past the reality of Jesus being and associating himself with people like that. He just can't marry it up in his brain. If this man was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she is. Well, of course, Jesus did know what sort of woman she was, yet accepted her and openly welcomed her. And the greatest contrast between Simon and this woman, it's not their social standing, it's not their lifestyle. The greatest contrast is their treatment of Jesus. That's the hugest contrast in this passage, how they looked at and how they treated Jesus. When I go home this afternoon, our home group are coming for lunch, 
Uh, so there's 25 people coming. So yesterday we spent a wee bit of time, as you do, getting the house ready and tidying up and getting it all organized and all the rest of it. And uh, I, I do jobs that I'm told to do, basically, uh, by Heidi. And I, I sort of now just accept uh, what it is I have to do for people coming to the house. There's some of them I don't understand, to be quite frank with you. So uh, the bathroom upstairs, I understand getting the bathroom clean. I'm not too sure about cleaning the shower tray and the glass and all the rest of it, because if someone's coming to your house for lunch, I mean, the thought of them having a shower would be bizarre, wouldn't it? I also don't understand having to hoover the spare rooms and the other bedrooms, because again, if someone's coming to your house, you know, if they need to go upstairs to use the bathroom, that's fine, but if they're poking around your bedroom, quite frankly, that's just not on. So there's these different aspects of things that I, and, and now, I'm now married 21 years, I still sort of moan a wee bit about it, but I now just get on with it, I'm for an easy life, <laughs> but I don't get some of them. But I think the one that frustrates me more than any is, and Heidi constantly changes it, whenever you're setting the table, you know the way you have the wee napkins and you fold them or whatever way you like to do it and you put it in the glass? It seems to me, I, I don't understand that, it looks nice, but what's the first thing you do when you sit down to your table? You lift out the napkin and you pour something in the glass. So it seems sensible. Just put the napkin beside the glass and then you don't need to go through that. Anyway, I've stopped. I've got it off my chest. <laughs> the reason we do that, the reason Heidi uh, encourages us to do that is because Heidi's a good hostess. And Heidi likes the house to be nice and welcoming for people who are coming. And actually, as much as I complain about it, I get that as well. And I do quite like the wee napkins folded nicely in the glass. It looks nice, uh, even though, it, anyway. So, and in this scene, Simon invites Jesus. Now, irrespective of what he knew about him or what he thought about him, he invited to his house the most significant person who's lived in all of human history. And I think he probably grasped that somewhat, if not fully grasped it, because of what he had heard about Jesus or possibly seen about Jesus himself. But as host, he didn't even observe the basic things a host would do, let alone go and do the other things to make his house welcome him. He didn't even observe the very basic things that any host would do if you're inviting someone to come along to your house. And it would cause you to question his motive behind inviting Jesus. Our motive when we invite people to the house is to get to know them and encourage them, and if they're going through difficulties, to try and spend time with them and help them in that, and just to spend time with people and welcome them. And you wonder why Simon invited Jesus to his house. Because even the basic things, washing his feet from the dust that he had gathered walking along the road, giving him a kiss, Mediterranean greeting, putting oil on his head to refresh him, he did none of those basic things that would have been expected and that probably most houses you went to you would have experienced. Yet this woman, this notorious sinner, the gate crasher, her tears wet Jesus' feet. I mean, she wept, she bawled over the Lord Jesus. And then she wiped them with her hair and she poured expensive perfume over his feet as well and kissed them. What an extraordinary response from a sinner, from someone who was excluded from every social gathering, not welcome anywhere. And what's Simon's response to that? I mean, if that was me, I'd have been mortified. I'd have been embarrassed if I realized what I had done. And what's Simon's response? This is my house. This is my party. This is my guest. She's a sinner. She shouldn't be picked last. She shouldn't be picked at all. She shouldn't be here. He 
he doesn't get it. He doesn't grasp it. He doesn't see it. And Jesus, as he so often did, with such clarity, tells a story in order to let Simon and the people gathered around as they see this scene unfold, see exactly what is happening. Let me read those verses again, verses 41 to 42, the story that Jesus told. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love more? So he paints the picture of these two people, one with a reasonably small debt, one with a massive debt. And the moneylender says to both of them, forget about it. <laughs> I know you can't pay that, so just forget about it. And Jesus is making the point that the one with a huge debt is probably the most grateful. And Simon still doesn't grasp it. He still doesn't see it. And the Lord points to this woman and says, she has been forgiven a lot. Both of those men who had the debt canceled against them both received grace and both received mercy. And that's what Jesus offered to both this sinner and this Pharisee. But it seems that only one accepted it, one realized it, one grasped it, one took the benefit of it. And Simon, like the small debtor, shows no appreciation, no thanksgiving to the Lord. And it made me think of another time, huge contrast, another story that Jesus told to make a point. A parable told in Luke chapter 18 of two men who came to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And if this was a pantomime, when the Pharisee arrived, people would clap and cheer. And when the tax collector people come in, people would boo. And that would be the understanding. But then Jesus says, this is what happens with these two people. The Pharisee comes in and he stands and he looks around to see who's watching him to make sure that he's the center of attention before he says anything else. And then he lifts his head to heaven, probably lifts his arm up. Lord, thank you that you've made me the way I am. Thank you that I am good. Thank you that I keep the commandments. Thank you that I give money. And he goes through this list of all the things that he does. And then Jesus turns it on his head and he says, the tax collector comes in and he doesn't come into the center of attention. He gets as far away as he can. He stands to the side because he's not interested in the people who are there who are maybe going to see him. In fact, he doesn't want to be seen. And he bows his head and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's exactly what happened in Simon's house. Here's Simon, look at me, look at my house, look at my party, look at my table setting, look at my guest. And this woman, she can't even look up. And she comes in, she breaks her heart and she puts her head down and she is concentrating on the Lord and has forgiven much. And Simon is preoccupied by this sinful woman and this sinful woman is preoccupied by the guest, the Lord Jesus. And I wonder for us in our lives, I wonder where we sit with these two people, if we're honest. I wonder, can relate, we relate to her? I wonder how often do we come broken and acknowledge the Lord Jesus, what he has done for us, and pour out our hearts to him and our tears to him and give our appreciation to him. I wonder how many times I'm like the Pharisee and I'm interested in myself and what's going on and how people are looking. That's a huge challenge to us, isn't it? She's preoccupied with Jesus, and Simon's only concern is how on earth could someone like him associate with someone like her, looking down his nose at this poor woman. As a church, we started a, a new reading plan this week, so a number of us uh, try to read through the same section together and try and share it with one another. So we started Mark's Gospel at the start of the week, 
And in Mark chapter 2, 15, it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's this woman, and she comes notorious a sinner, and she bows her head, and she breaks her heart, and she pours out her tears on the Lord's feet. And Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a moment for that woman. What a day that she would never forget. Where the eyes weren't all on her because of her sin and because of her lifestyle. The eyes were on her because of the Savior who forgave her and radically changed her life. And it wasn't her social status or her knowledge of the law or her life up to that point. Jesus said, your sins have been forgiven, past tense. It was her faith in Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy to her. James chapter 2, 14 to 18. When we trust the Lord Jesus, when he forgives our sins, when we come into relationship with him, it's not about sitting back and just basking in the good of that. There's a time to do that, of course, isn't there? To reflectively appreciate what he has done for us and to enjoy that and to think about that. But that's not what Christian life's about. The Christian life is about going forward in service and appreciation. And this is what it says in James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. We are not accepted and forgiven and restored and saved and brought into relationship with the Lord Jesus by anything we do. But when we are accepted and restored and forgiven and redeemed by the Lord Jesus' grace, then we show it by what we do. The Christian life is not sitting back and thinking and basking in the good of what Jesus has done for us. It's going forward and living out faith to, so that those around us can see the reality of that. And the title for this message this morning I was given was the love and service of those who have experienced salvation. And when we experience salvation, it should lead to love and service of the Lord Jesus. That's what it should be, whatever that looks like for you. Wherever that is, whether that's involved in Community Week here in the church or the various ministries that happen throughout the year or in your workplace or in your street, wherever it is, it's lived out faith, not saving us, but showing the reality that we are saved. And after this extraordinary event in Simon's house where this woman is forgiven and pours out her heart of appreciation to the Lord, it goes on to say that after this, chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support him, them out of their own means. So here are these women, who each had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus, that radically changed their lives, and each of them 
then went on to follow him and out of their own means in order to help with the message of the kingdom of God as it was spread. They were showing their faith by what they did, lived out faith in response to grace that they had received. And I wonder where you sit in your response to Jesus this morning. And I wonder where I sit, if I'm honest, in my response to Jesus this morning. With all the benefits of online material over the last couple of years, and we are grateful, of course, for that, uh, maybe initially uh, more so, for the reality to be able to sit and to connect and to have this online material. But to be honest with you, I think with all the benefits of online material, one of its greatest detriments is it's producing a generation of consumers. And if we're not careful, well, actually, I was going to say if we're not careful, it creeps into the church. It's crept into the church, of course. Because what we can do very readily and very easily is we can go online and enjoy a nice wee starter of praise from one church and then the main course of teaching from another church and then all washed down with a nice wee candy of reflective worship from somewhere else. And we sit in our houses and we just drink in, we just take in, we consume now, don't get me wrong, I'm very positive about online material, it is good, but I think there's a huge danger in it. And I think there's a huge danger that as Christians, we will become consumers if we're not careful, and we'll just sit and we'll just drink in this stuff. Well, it's good to drink in stuff, but it has to then flow out as well in our daily lives. We have to go and do something about it and make a difference in the world that God has called us to, a world that's broken and lost and in turmoil. And praise God, we've got the answer, and that's not arrogance. That's because his Holy Spirit has opened our minds in order to help us see that. And there's a danger that we just take that, enjoy it, get on with our week. Well, we're not called to be consumers. We're called to be contributors to the life of the church and to the life of society. Lived out faith in Jesus as a result of being transformed and forgiven. Then our act of worship and appreciation, it's twofold. It's as we come together as church and pour out our hearts to him but it's as we go into a world and pour out our lives in service to him. Lived out faith in response to what Jesus has done for us. Given thanks, praise, worship, and adoration to him. And taking this message to a world that is broken and lost. And remembering that each of us, wherever we're at, have a huge debt of sin that has been poured out on Christ on the cross. And he took it gladly and paid for it. And for those of us who are Christians, let's be careful we don't forget that. That's the reality of our lives. And if you're not yet a Christian, he paid for that on the cross. And you can come this morning and you can respond to him and surrender your heart to him. And like this woman, you can be forgiven by grace alone and receive his mercy. Let me finish with an image that came really clearly to my mind as I thought about this scene at Simon's house. So you picture Simon in a position of prominence at the center of the table, his house, his party, his guests. And there he sits right in the middle of everything that's going on. And then this woman who comes in and causes a stir with her head down, a broken life restored through Christ, but a broken heart in appreciation and worship and praise to the Lord Jesus. And it's a section of this book by Max Licato in The Grip of Grace. And he imagines the scene in David's palace where Absalom has been invited to live. So this young man who in haste, in his youth, when he was being carried by his nurse, fell and landed on his feet and was crippled. And that was his label throughout his life, a cripple. But David in his mercy reached out to him in his grace, found out about Absalom, relative of Saul, and invited him into his house 
to live. And this is the, the picture uh, that Max Licato paints of that scene. The dinner bell rings through the king's palace. David comes to the head of the table and sits down. In a few minutes, moments, Amnon, clever, crafty Amnon, sits to the left of David. Lovely and gracious Tamar, a charming and beautiful young woman, arrives and sits beside Amnon. And then across the way, Solomon walks slowly from his study, preoccupied, precocious, brilliant Solomon. The heir apparent slowly sits down. And then Absalom, handsome, winsome Absalom, with the beautiful flowing hair, black as a raven, raven down to his shoulders, sits down. That particular evening, Joab, the courageous warrior, and David's commander of the troops has been invited to dinner. Muscular brawn, Joab is seated near the king. And then afterwards they wait. They hear the shuffling of feet, the clump, clump, clump of the crutches as Mephibosheth, I said Absalom, sorry, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth rather, awkwardly finds his place at the table and slips into his seat and the tablecloth covers his feet. I love that image. And I thought about that as I thought about this scene in Simon's house. Here's Simon with his chest puffed out. Look at me. And the Lord Jesus, and he just ignored him. And here's this broken woman accepted and forgiven by Jesus. And as I think about that scene, that scene in that palace, and here's all these people who by right should have been there. And here is Mephibosheth, a cripple through the grace of David invited to sit at the table of the king. Let me tell you who I relate to. I relate to the woman who's a sinner and broken, and I relate to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. That's who I relate to. And there's nothing I can do that will ever make me acceptable by God, but praise God, there's nothing I ever have to do. And as a 10-year-old, when I acknowledged what Jesus had done for me on the cross and repented of my sin and trusted him as Savior and Lord, my life radically changed. And I haven't always done it well, and I'm not perfect, nor will I be going forward. But my response is one of trying to live out my faith to show people around me that man changed my life and he can change yours as well. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. It needs to be a life of lived out faith in response to this huge debt that was forgiven for each of us and this grace and mercy that we have received. And let me encourage you to do that because this world needs it. And let me encourage you to live in salt and light in a world that's flavorless and dark and bring the reality and the light of Christ. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this scene. Father, thank you for the grace of your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his compassion for people. And thank you that this woman and many others, having met Jesus, went away changed forever, but lived out the reality of their changed life by their faith and their works and their actions. And God, please spare us from hypocrisy in our lives, where we say that you are the most important person in our lives. And it, we push you to the margins of our lives, if we're honest. Help us every day to live in the good of what you've done for us as a response and to live out our faith and to show this world that we are your children and to bring the reality of you into their lives and show forth that. And we pray for the people in this room and the people who have listened to this message that that will be the case for them as well, all for the glory of your name and your lovely son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.